Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told by the Gospel of Mark. We hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody. Welcome back to Jericho Road. In this season, we're looking at the world of Jesus as it is told in the Gospel of Mark. And this podcast is the third in a three-part podcast of ethics in the kingdom of God, all found in this 10th chapter. Uh, We began with a look at divorce and remarriage. We looked at family, and now we're going to look at status. And this passage that I'm about to read to you also contains one of the most embarrassing scenes in the whole Bible. Yikes. It's really cringeworthy, and it involves James and John, the sons of Zebedee. So let's read it and see if we can find something in a new way. This is Mark chapter 10, beginning with the 32nd verse. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And he took the twelve aside and again began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and then they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit upon him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came forward to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What is it that you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink with the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They replied, We are able. Then Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink. The baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. When the ten heard this, they began to be angry with James and John. So Jesus called them and said to them, You know that the Gentiles among those whom they recognize as their rulers lorded over them, and their great ones are tyrants over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Well, right away when we read the story, like many stories in Scripture, geography matters. And we're told in verse 32 that they're going up to Jerusalem. They're actually going up the Jericho Road, which is the name of this podcast. And the Jericho Road is a thing. It was a thing then. It's still a thing now. Uh, The pilgrim route that Jesus would have taken to Jerusalem is down the Jordan River Valley. And then at the town of Jericho, they would hang a right and go up the mountain. It's 18 miles long. It goes up from from the lowest place on planet Earth, which is about 1,500 feet below sea level, to about 2,000 feet above sea level. So it's an ear popping drive. I can only imagine what it would be like to climb it. But the hill is only part of the drama. Jesus, we're told, is walking ahead of them. He's forging ahead in anticipation. And we're told right here that the disciples are amazed, while the other pilgrims, they're scared to death. I've got my own story with this. I take groups to Israel, and when I take a group to the Holy Land, I try to immerse them in the world of Jesus by following the story in sequence. Sequence, which simply means that 
you know, you'll see tour guides that will begin in Jerusalem and end up in Galilee. I like to begin in Galilee because that's where the ministry begins. And then we go down to Jerusalem following the uh, Jericho Road so that we can recreate the story. And it never fails to happen when we take a group to Galilee, they're lulled by the bucolic beauty of the place. They they love the lake. The people are friendly. We stay in a cozy little place where doors don't have to be locked. You can wander around. You can wander away. Meals are long. Folks are helpful and they're friendly. In a podcast I made a couple years ago, I titled it, Jesus is from Alabama. Something very Southern and familiar about the Galilee, and we all love it. But here, We had to take a bus to Jerusalem, and on our way to the city, I gave everybody the talk. I mean, it's like New Orleans in the French Quarter. You don't wander away. You watch your wallet. Uh, There are going to be hucksters down there. There are going to be people pawing on you. Don't go off without anybody in the group. Uh, Make sure that you watch, that you don't go down any uh, dark alleys. I mean, again and again and again, we have to train them that Jerusalem is not the Galilee. About 150 years ago, Mark Twain uh, described Jerusalem this way when he when he saw it. He didn't think a whole lot about it. He said, In Jerusalem, they're lepers, cripples, blind, the idiotic. They assail you on every hand. They know but one word of one language, apparently, and that's the eternal money. To see the numbers of maimed, malformed, and diseased humanity that throng the holy places and obstruct the gates, one might suppose that the ancient days had come again and the angel of the Lord was expected to descend at any moment to stir the waters of Bethesda. Jerusalem is mournful and dreary and lifeless. I would not desire to live here. Well, Jerusalem was dangerous then too, especially for a folk hero rabbi, and they all know this. Remember, this is a place that a town that would that would swell, the ranks would swell from 25,000, 35,000 people to a million on the festival. And the Romans knew that and they were prepared. It was full of soldiery and and they were ready for any kind of trouble or insurrection. If you want to buy some trouble, you can find it in this city. And so going up the Jericho Road, Jesus takes them aside, his friends aside, and he tells them, actually he confirms their worst fears and it's the third time he does it. He tells them he'll be handed over. He'll be condemned to death. The Gentiles will do it. And this is the first time he adds that. And they will, and I quote, mock him, spit upon him, flog him, kill him. And after three days, he'll rise again. There are two layers of meaning to this confession. First of all, we know that Jesus knows what the Romans will do. He's seen it. They know what the Romans will do. They've all seen it. They go to these festivals every year of their lives, and they've seen soldiers uh, act as a very effective deterrent against any sort of misbehavior. The Romans will kill you, and they like to kill you publicly so that you will behave. That's the first layer of meaning. But the second layer of meaning is this. Jesus is fulfilling a long-ago dream, and it happened 600 years before during the exile. The dream is from the prophet Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 50. and begins with the fourth verse. I'll read it to you. Verses 4 through 6. The Lord God has given me the tongue of a teacher, that I may know how to sustain the weary with the word. Morning by morning he awakens, wakens my ear to listen as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I did not turn backward. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who pulled out the beard. I did not hide my face from insult and spitting. I cannot overstate the importance of the exile as a backstory in the Hebrew Scriptures and a backstory for us. 
The Hebrews had long understood this song or this dream as the experience of their nation. This would be the cost of their being different in the way that the Bible asks us to be different. And alone of all the nations that were displaced by the Babylonian strategy of exile, only the Hebrews would go home to rebuild. I've talked about this in other podcasts, but think about the the Philistines in the Old Testament, right? The bad boys of the Bible that we find in Judges and and in 1 Samuel. Uh, This is Delilah, the the Philistine, and and Goliath was a Philistine, of course. And so you, you think about these people. Well, they disappeared at the time of the exile, which was exactly what the Babylonians wanted to happen. The nation of Israel, when when the kingdoms were split between Israel and Judah, they disappeared 700 years before Jesus, which is exactly what the Assyrians before wanted to do. The whole point of exile was to create this one blended Mesopotamian culture, this, this superpower, if you will, and they would do this by destroying your nation. But the Hebrews would go home. They kept their identity and they would go home and they would be changed forever. They left as a nation, they came back as a people. And from 586 BC until 1948, except for a brief period under the Maccabees of 100 years, they were all ruled by someone else. So this dream from Isaiah would remind them to put their hope in God alone while living in a world that was not their own. And here on the Jericho Road, Jesus now embodies this dream for all of humanity, What would be their story has now become our story, and Isaiah's wildest dreams simply weren't wild enough. Then comes the embarrassing part. Okay, back in in Capernaum on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, there's a little column, a little pillar, and it's got some old words scratched onto it. I'm pretty sure it's Hebrew. And this is, comes from a, a later time than the world of Jesus, but it's still Capernaum, and there's still people living there. It's the same families, if you will. And so on this pillar, is, is, is it reads this, Alphaeus, the son of Zebedee, the son of John, made this column. May it be for him a blessing. And so even though it comes from another century, it shows that there was a Zebedee family living there. Uh, it's like a little wink or a postcard from the past. And I wonder if all the Zebedees just weren't the same, right? I wonder if people who would be from Galilee uh, knowing this story or hearing this story for the first time would say, well, of course they ask him the question because they're Zebedees. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left. Well, like the other two lessons that we've learned from Mark chapter 10, they are confusing means and ends. The goal of life is not status. The goal of life is union with God and with each other. Status may come, but so will loss. Here at St. Luke's, I say all the time, to be alive means that at any given point, we're either in a crisis or coming out of a crisis or heading into a crisis, and there could be many of those at one time. But along the way, and with God's help and God's grace, comes wisdom. If they knew the scriptures, they should have known. Now, I'm going to take a break from this story and take you to the destination, Jerusalem, and tell you about something that is fairly recent and fairly exciting in the world of biblical archaeology. Um, to the northwest of a ridge called the City of David, and it's just to the west and south of the Temple Mount, just below the Temple Mount, is what was formerly a parking lot for tour buses and now has been uncovered, and it's called the Givati Dig. It's a fascinating time capsule of life in Jerusalem from the destruction of the Babylonian, uh, the Babylonian destruction, from the destruction of the city then, 586, up until the year 70 when the Romans destroyed it and displaced the Jewish people and rebuilt 
a city there named Alia Capitolina. The fact that it exists is fascinating because you can't find a detailed dig like this in a major city. And I'll use Rome as an example. This will make sense if you think about it. Rome is plenty old. I mean, it could be as old as Jerusalem, but you can't find stuff there because you've got subways and you've got electrical conduit and you've got sewage. In other words, you've got all the subterranean stuff that builds up a city getting in the way. You can find old things, but you can't really find a city block like that. Well, the Gibati dig is different in that when the Romans destroyed the city in the year 70, they filled, they filled this neighborhood in and built a villa on top, which sealed it like a time capsule. And so once they discovered it and began to uncover it, it is a marvelous, it was a marvelous look at life in which we only had words on a page and now we can touch it. And last summer, I got a chance to go to Israel in the middle of this COVID lockdown. I got permission to go and I stood in a house that was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians. The heat of the fire was so intense that it changed the color of the stone. And what's thrilling about standing in a house like this is we know that it really happened just like the prophets warned. For the purposes of today's lesson, I want to talk a little bit about this warning from the prophets, but one particular prophet, and his name was Micah. His ministry happened some 700 years before Jesus, and it happened during the reigns of three Judean kings that you can find in Scripture, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And Micah watched the destruction of Israel in the north. Uh, He experienced attack by the same Assyrian army. In his anthology of his works, Micah is horrified, not by the destruction, but because the people living in, in, in Judah were not different in the way that God asked them to be different. They weren't different in society. They neglected the needy. They left the poor behind. They let people fall through the cracks. And then they, were, they weren't different in their worship. They followed after the gods of their neighbors, whether that could be a fertility pole or a tree or a golden calf. And he sees both the problems of society and worship being the same problem. You see, the problem with a foreign god or fertility pole means that you're adopting your neighbor's ethics. Yes, it's true that God says you'll have no other gods before me in the Ten Commandments. That's an end. But worshiping another god is just a means of, of, of losing your way. If you worship the gods of your neighbors, then you're going to be like them. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were thinking like Romans. And Romans, or, or people who don't follow God, make God their king, their end, their purpose, their union uh, with God and with each other. When that ceases to become our end, then we're ruled by our appetites. And our appetites will always fail us. And that could be an appetite for wealth. That could be an appetite for status. That could be an appetite for anything beyond union with the Lord. And so Micah watched with horror as it would all come crashing down just as he promised that it would. So he writes these words from God in Micah chapter 6 to remind uh, God's people of God's priorities. It goes like this. This is Micah 6, verse 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? So he sets up a contrast. What can I give to God that God would want if I could give God everything? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. 
He has told you, O mortal, what is good. And because the Hebrew in the third person singular pronoun is often passive, and remember that Hebrew is a poet's language. It can mean many things. But because that is often passive, this could easily read, it has always been told to you, O mortal, what is good. Not simply it's a one-off, God told Micah to say this, love, kindness, justice, and humility, but rather it's always been told you from page one in scripture to page 1001. Will you be different in the way that I'm asking you to be different? Will you be humble and kind and have a servant's heart? And the Zebedee boys should have known. It's always been the same. There's a scene from John's gospel in the 13th chapter that I love. It's not in Mark. It's not in the first three. We call the first three gospels the synoptic gospels because they're so told with the same view. And in fact, Matthew and Luke have almost all of Mark within them. But they're told with the shape of the Passover so that Jesus becomes the Passover lamb, that he becomes an embodiment, if you will, of the Passover. And just as he is an embodiment of the dream that we looked at today, John's gospel is different. It has a different trajectory. It's about water. And for that reason, I believe it's about a different festival. Jesus is also embodying a festival in the fall, Sukkot, which is about living water. And he talks about water all the time. And if you look at the, the miracles, they often have water within them. In John chapter 13, uh, Jesus takes water and he washes the feet of his disciples. This is a job, washing feet is a job so demeaning, it was reserved for slaves alone, and Jewish slaves didn't even have to do it. It was unprecedented for the teacher or the leader to be a slave for his students. It's not in Mark's gospel, but yes, it is in Mark's gospel. It could be in any of the gospels again and again and again. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. If you want to be first, you must be last. If you want to find your life, you must lose your life. This is the way we're different and the way that God asks us to be different. Justice, kindness, humility. It was always this way. It's always been told to you. Of course, we know on the Jericho Road, there would follow anger and recriminations. They would be angry with James and John, which they should have been. Uh, but he takes it and he sweeps it all away with grace. Don't give in to anger. Don't give in to hate. That's not, that's not what we're about. The cross and the empty tomb would show them the way. The cross and the empty tomb would prove to be a ransom to break them and us from a cycle that we can't get out on our own. Left on our own, we're left to our appetites. We're left to our... We're a slave to our desires. We, we, we get confused about status or we get confused about our place in the world. But grace reaches down and takes us by the hand and leads us home to our true home, which is union with God and with each other. And we gather wisdom along the way. Grace, once again, breaks the cycle. And we will find that the hand holding ours has a nail print within them. Well, I hope you're beginning to see Mark chapter 10 in a new way. And thank you for joining me, and we'll, we'll keep it going next week when he heals a blind man named Bartimaeus. Thanks, everybody.